Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show. On your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Now, back in 2008, as we were covering the come up to the primary election uh, in the Democratic Party and Republican election that led to the nomination and then election of Barack Obama as the first black president of the United States of America, one of the people who was on our show constantly back then and has been on our show constantly since then for the last nine years is a man named Lenny McAllister. We have never met face-to-face, as many of my wonderful guests, but he's in Baltimore and has dropped by our studios. Uh, Lenny, welcome. Good to see you, man. Good to see you in it the is, flesh. It, it, in the it, flesh. it seems as though we have done this before. <laughs> right. but um, We've never had. The beauty of the, beauty of the bond of technology and just the overall wonderful camaraderie I've been able to share with you over this almost a full decade. I just want to say thank you for sharing that with me. And uh, it's good to finally hug yeah. you and good to finally see the, the team and uh, come in studio. Good to have you here. So thank you. Reintroducing Lenny. Lenny is uh, was ran for Congress in 2016 as a Republican uh, in Pittsburgh. He ran before that in North Carolina, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Or Chicago. Chicago. Yes. Chicago. Uh, and he's the incoming adjunct professor of history at La Roche College in Pittsburgh, and was named by the Root as, a, as a 100, the top, as the Root 100, excuse me, as one of the most influential African Americans under 45 years old, uh, and still is very active in the Republican Party, passing through town, number of uh, jobs and interviews and work he's doing here, and stops by our studio. And Lenny, as I said, good to have you here. This is wonderful. So, where do we begin, Lenny? There's so much going on. <laughs> um, as we speak, uh, your president is running through the... Your uh, well, no, well, our president. And, 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 <laughs> I have and, a hard time using oh, that. Oh, I understand. I have and, a very hard and, time and, saying And that. one of the things I, I try to clarify is, number one, I mean, there were a lot of Republicans that said that about President Obama. I'm like, hey, he's our president. He's the president of the United States. The big difference, though, that I think some of that was done because people had a real racist reaction to the first black president. I agree. But and this is a visceral political ideological yes, reaction. Yes, it is. Well, and, and it's also a reaction. I don't even know if it's just political. I mean, I think a lot of it is a reaction to the divisiveness that has been Donald Trump. I mean, you know, going back to my campaign, for example, as a pundit, I didn't support him. As a candidate, I didn't support him. When I won the nomination in 2016, I was given an opportunity. I was vetted to speak at the convention I remember this. With, the condi- with the condition that you must give a, and the statement was a full-throated endorsement of Donald J. Trump at the convention in your speech. And no. And so I have no problem walking away and, and criticizing what he's been. But at the same time, we also have to understand that because he is number 45, there is a, a, a level of engagement that we must all have as Americans to make sure that our collected, our collective destiny stays on the right path, despite whatever proposals out there, despite whatever controversy might be out there. That's the reason why, whether it was some of the policies that people disagree with with, with 44 or 43, I mean, George W. Bush wasn't exactly a, a stale right. president either, nor was his presidency, we have to take the same approach with 45, even when we disagree with him. So, I hear you. I, I, I think it, it, this for time, though, is, is, um, is particularly difficult. Uh, and um, I think it's particularly difficult because of what happened during this campaign is different. I mean, we can argue, which we can talk about in a bit, about both he and um, and George Bush, who won in 2001, won with the minority of votes for the Electoral College. We can get into that in a little while. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's real. But the difference is that his campaign was so 
I don't mind unorthodox. I've spent most of my life being unorthodox and not in the mainstream. So I have no problem with not being yeah. in the mainstream. But his campaign was so full of hyperbole, of racist rhetoric, um, of demonization of women and, pe- and people with disabilities, of his attitude towards people of, La- of any Latino descent, Mex- taking on that judge of American, an American of Mexican descent who was a judge, mm-hmm. all the rest. It was, it was beyond the pale, and I think that that's the problem. Why so many Europeans, as the interview you heard just before this, um, so many Europeans um, came out and keep coming out against him, why so many Americans have demonstrated against him, why the majority of Americans voted against him, uh, is beca- just because of that. Because he's not just an outlier. I mean, ben- Bernie Sanders is an outlier, but there's a difference. And I think that he's dangerous to this country, and I think he's dangerous uh, for the world. The dangerous aspect of the rhetoric that we heard during the campaign was not even the stuff that he overtly said. It was the dog whistling that transpired. It was the undercurrent, and it was the shoulder shrugging, well, I didn't really mean that aspect of what he said. And to be able to play both sides of the fence and be successful is what I think has been very scary about the last several years watching this political campaign play out and then eventually getting into this presidency because it shows exactly how divided we are still as a country. You know, I understand where people say that President Obama was one of the most divisive figures in the last 50 years. I don't think that he was the most divisive person in his actions. He did some things, obviously, I disagreed with. But I think that the very presence of him being there in 2008 should have been something that was a healing mechanism for the United States of America. And instead, it literally was a huge eight-year-long litmus test as to where we are when it comes to race, when it comes to equality, when it comes to society. And I would have to say, and I think that many, many people being truthful would say, we've been found wanting in many, many regards going into 2017. And then to have a Donald Trump come along who has not articulated conservatism at all. I mean, one of the things I said in 2015 when I was asked, can you support him if he's the Republican nominee? I said, no. I said, because this is a guy that said, as a Christian conservative who's been a lifelong Christian at 70 years old, he's never had to ask God for forgiveness one time in his life. He just figured he'd fix it himself. And the whole asp- the whole essence of Christianity is an aspect that you have to go to God for forgiveness because you can't fix it yourself. So he, even with Christian conservatives who have who gave them overwhelmingly their support to Donald Trump in November 2016, there's always been this back and forth trying to play both sides of things, and that's not leadership. That is, is to me, what gets dangerous, even with the the overseas trip in the Middle East. You see him, he says one thing in the United States, he goes over to the Middle East and says something different, and... You know, I want him to be successful so that the country's successful, but I, I want him to be successful in a particular way, just like I wanted President Obama to be successful in a particular way. And that goes back to, can you bring the country together? Can you bring policies that will empower people? And can you get America back to what it could be for more Americans, not what it can be for small slivers of America? So there's so much here. I mean, and I... I'm going to take a diversion in a moment. Let me just finish this thought first. Um, I mean, see, to me, what Donald Trump has done, and there's a long history in America 
uh, you know, in, in our 19th century politics, of, of this group, the Know Nothings, who were yeah. very powerful political mm-hmm. politically, in the middle of the 19th yep. century. And they were a robust mob of racist, xenophobic people that took control of the, of the government the, where we are broadcasting from now, in Baltimore and in Maryland, right? And across the country. Jackson, Jackson, Andrew Jackson, who he knows nothing about in terms of who he really was, but but the the Jacksonian Revolution on one hand was positive because it took pushed back the aristocratic control of, of America. On the other hand, it was this racist white mob on another hand that also pushed Jackson, the slave owner and and I and, and who committed genocide against native folks. It was the spirit of the Dixiecrats who are now part of your party, not part of the Democratic Party. I mean, that to me is what he represented in this. That's why I say he's frightening. That's why I say when you have somebody like that who is in the White House, who represents that aspect of American society and what that could mean for our future, whether you are conservative, liberal, libertarian, socialist, I don't care who you are. That's what I'm saying. Well, and you have to look at certain policies, too. Like, for example, there was a recent report that came out that said that there's a bill that's been presented on Capitol Hill now that apparently has the White House's blessing where it's going to be harder to sue police officers. It's going to be harder to litigate police officers. Now, if you've been paying attention to any of the cases over the last 15 years or so, it's not exactly easy to prosecute police officers. The one main one that's been prosecuted and found guilty, there literally had to be a cell phone video showing the police officer shooting the guy in the back while he's running away from the police officer, not causing any type of threat whatsoever, and then looking at the report that that police officer submitted saying that he was wrestling for my gun and that's how he got shot. So when you start looking at the legislation that's coming down, I mean, there's one side of it to me that says, okay, You can make a proposal. It doesn't mean that it's going to become law. But then there's another side of me that says, for example, when Attorney General Sessions is looking to push mandatory minimums, and then I look at my Commonwealth of Pennsylvania where they're trying to reinstitute uh, mandatory minimums once again, and, you know, I'm part of the movement to push back against that, obviously. As a – yeah, you were a Republican. We were reminding our listeners of something, right? So when you start – or you start looking at the voter ID situations, and, you know, Mark and I, you and I have talked about this. The um, voter ID law that came up in 2012 was very unpopular for me as a Republican to come – over to Philadelphia and be the only Republican speaking with the NAACP to make sure that the Pennsylvania um, Supreme Court struck down the voter ID law of 2012 to make sure that roughly upwards of a half a million Pennsylvanians could still vote in that presidential election. When you start watching the policies that are coming down, and I won't even say just from this White House, and I, I think it's very dangerous for us collectively to just focus on Trump. We have to look at the tone in the country. It's an us versus them. And when you have an us versus them domestically, you make yourself vulnerable internationally. And I'm not just talking about ISIS or al-Qaeda. I'm talking about losing your place economically in the world. I'm talking about losing your place when it comes to innovation in the world. I'm talking about losing your place when it comes to gravitas in the world. Because you're too busy bickering over things that should not be bickered over. Even if you're going to have infighting, infighting to elevate is different than infighting to tear down. And right now... America hates each other, and that is a very bad place to be, and Trump just took advantage of that. Trump didn't necessarily start that. So, no, he didn't start that, but I think it's exacerbated, and I think we are in a place where it's us and them. That's where America has come to for a lot of reasons, I think, historically, that we are in this place 
because the America that was is no longer. Because of the civil rights movement that began in the 50s and 40s and 50s, led to the 1960s in civil rights, um, in uh, the, the beginning of Latino movements, the Latino world coming up in America, the women's movement, environmental movement. America no longer, America used to believe that George Washington chopped down the cherry tree. The mythology of who we are and were has been destroyed and we have nothing to replace it with. And our differences are so vast, I clearly, I do not see at this moment what that bridge is um, that changes that, uh, other than some major political upheaval that I think we're seeing that we're in the midst of now. Well, how, did, how that's going to be defined for the future? I don't know, but that's where I think we are. I, I wish that's my major disappointment with President Obama. You he, put this at his doorstep? I think that, well... As much as I disagree with him on different things... No, I he, think that I think that he was less interested in being a healer during his first term than he was in his second term. But he had all the political capital in his first term. If you were going to do it, you had to do it when you had all the political capital in 20, 2009 and 2010. And I think that... Honestly, I think that he was a young president that got sidetracked by the old heads in the Democratic Party to try to push through health care reform. Because if you remember, he was talking about jobs. His main focus initially was the stimulus package. And if he would have taken a different approach, he still probably could have gotten health care reform, would have gotten the stimulus package, probably would have gotten people back to work faster. And I think that the Democrats would have dominated the next three elections. That's really what I thought would happen. <laughs> but be, and I, I think that because you got to remember, uh-huh. first hire was Rahm Emanuel. That's not a conciliatory type of hire, and that brings a certain type of tone in there. I think that, and I go back to this speech in 2009, the infamous Joe Wilson, you lie speech. People remember the you lie. They don't remember what President Obama was saying. He was trying to bridge the gap there, and I think that the Pelosi's of the world, the Reed's of the world, and the Emanuel's of the world. And remember, Rahm Emanuel wanted to become mayor of Chicago and then run for president. That was his plan. He didn't want... This young guy who he remembers being a state senator who jumped in front of him in line, messing up his plans, just like Secretary of State Clinton pretty much took the same approach with President Obama. I think that he had an opportunity to do a little bit more while he had the political capital. And by the time he did try to speak out on Trayvon Martin, the time he did try to speak out on some of these inequalities, I think he was eloquent in doing it and I think he was appropriate in doing it. But he also didn't have the political cachet to effectively do it. So, uh, I, I want to switch gears here, but I got, we can stay for a moment because I, I have a similar but a very different view of what happened in 2008. I can see the glimmer in your eye with it. <laughs> 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 and it's because we come from different political perspectives. So, this, so, so, I mean, I agree that I think President Barack Obama blew it in 2008, but for totally different reasons. Okay. Um, I don't think there's any way that he could have bridge the gap that came against him and came against the Democrats in 2016. Um, I think where I think he blew it was, I mean, he was elected in 2008. I think he had the country in his hands. The majority of Americans were with him. I agree with that. Um, He had both houses of Congress. The Senate and the House of Representatives were controlled by his party. Yes. Significantly so. Significantly so. Um, he instead, here's what happened. If, so he, I agree again. He wrapped himself around the old party establishment that took hold of what 
his message was and the direction they were going in. That was a problem. Because I think, here's where I first saw it. When he put in his Council of Economic Advisors, he didn't put in anybody who had was kind of against Wall Street, wanted more regulations. They were all the establishment Wall Street types. So there's not going to be no give and take on that council about where we should go. That was a that was a that 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 that, that rang alarm bells in my head. It, I think from the other side, if he had moved as the progressive populist he was elected as, even though he really wasn't that, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? And because I think most of Americans, because of the depth of racism in America, saw the embodiment of our future freedom and development in. In, in a black man, just because of the nature of racism in America, an unconscious behavior. There was a reaction. Right. So, so right. So, so, so I'll make this quick. So, so I think that what he, what happened there, if he had gone after the banks, if he had prosecuted some bank leaders, uh, people who brought our, our our economy down, if he had frozen um, the closing, uh, the, 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 the taking people's homes away, in the mortgage crisis, if he had instituted a new Glass-Steagall for the 21st century, he could have done all of that. Then I think the Democrats would not have lost the election in the next in the next uh, uh, next congressional elections, and and he would have built something more, very powerful. But he didn't do that. He went completely establishment, and that's what pushed him backwards. Some people say because he was the first black president, he felt stymied. I, I don't I don't buy that part. You beat. Uh, let me say this real quick, and then we want to transition. You beat Joe Biden, the last VP candidate, and a former first lady who's a sitting U.S. senator. And then you go beat somebody that was in the Senate forever. I mean, Joe Biden was literally in the Senate since Barack Obama was in third grade. Right. You beat that guy in the primary. Then you go beat John McCain. I don't think you're worried about being stymied. The thing I think they should have done, and and George Bush missed this as well. I wanted to make sure I brought this point up. When they put the conditions on the banks and said your executives cannot make any more than a quarter of a million dollars a year until you pay back the bailout money, the condition they should have put in there was, and they cannot get their former compensation until, one, the money is paid back, and number two, unemployment is at a certain rate. And by not tying in the fate of the American people as well as the bottom line, it gave the banks an opportunity to get off the hook the types of measures that were put in place and type of people that were hired in the administration were old school Clinton 2.0 folks and people looked those that energized and got the Obama movement going in 2007 they faded away there was a, a, a counter movement that came up in 2009 and we all know what happened by 2010 we're here talking with Lenny McAllister uh, who's been a guest on the show for nine years usually by phone or Skype or something like that he has been a Republican candidate twice for Congress. He's from Pittsburgh. He has his own TV show and radio show uh, up there, and he's incoming professor of history at La Roche College in Pittsburgh. So I, I, I'm going to talk about Lenny McAllister for a moment. You, you grew up in Pittsburgh, right? Yes. Right. So, so tell me your sojourn into um, Republican politics and being a conservative who's African American, which is is not a commonplace animal politically speaking. Political animal in, in our country. Um, uh, so, talk about who you are, where did you come from, how did you get to the politics that you hold today? Well, I, I thought that you were going to ask me if I had any type of allergic reaction driving past MT Stadium 
on my way over here as a Steelers <laughs> fan. This this question you asked a well, lot easier talk, than whoa, whoa, whoa. that. We can, talk, <laughs> we can talk Steelers and Ravens if you want to. It's okay. It's it, it's a silly season. We can talk about it nicely. No one wants to talk about it in December when I mean, the playoffs on. are on the line. Next time your boys come down and play in Baltimore, you can come down and stay with us, and we'll go to the game together. You wear your colors, I wear mine. How's that? I will do that. That sounds like fun. <laughs> you know, in regards to being a black conservative, growing up as a cradle Catholic in Pittsburgh, Growing up with a dad that believed in um, non-public schools. And this is a guy that, that went to public schools his whole life. My mother went to public schools her whole life. What did he do? What did they do? Um, my mother was a, a homemaker and eventually worked several other odds and end jobs. My dad was a computer technician. And then eventually after that job went away after 25 years, he ended up working at U.S. Claritin Works, U.S. Steel, and retired from there. And I'm still kicking around. My mom passed away years ago, but my, my dad's still kicking around. going to be 75 um, this upcoming year, upcoming summer. But the values they always came up with, you know, I, you know people say that hard work and faith in God is, is a Republican value. And that, I think that's really selling short because, I mean, that, that's— it's, an, that's, it's American, really. Yeah, there you go. But in regards to things such as school choice, in regards to really looking at a future— forward perspective on everything from spending to education, things along those lines, I think it did lean a little bit more towards the conservative side. And again, you grow up in Pittsburgh, name, address, phone number, you know, your your fingerprints, and then they stamp Democrat on your birth certificate. So, you know, I grew up as a Democrat, but not knowing why. But as I looked at my political values as I got older, I affiliated with the Republican Party with the caveat that I will speak up when necessary. I remember the first, and I will not call out where it was, but the first political meeting my wife and I ever went to, we walked into the, um, it was an auditorium. We walked in, and this group was having their meeting, and they were on stage. We were invited to it, but I don't think they expected us to come. And we walked in, and people were telling Hillary Clinton lesbian jokes. And then realized was that... Was it a Republican gathering or a Democratic gathering? <laughs> it was not a Democratic gathering. Okay, just check it out. Yeah, okay. And they looked and saw two new people that they didn't recognize and looked at the looks on our faces and they stopped. There weren't too many of the black folks in the room, I take it. You no, know, we were probably, I think, one of maybe two or four. Mm-hmm. Two or four. And so being involved in the Republican Party has always been a caveat that I will be a proud Republican, I will be an outspoken Republican, but I'm going to focus on justice. I'm going to focus on the Constitution. I'm going to focus on conservatism. And I think that's what's been liberating for me in my journey as a public figure, because there are times where you have to call out the Republican Party. For example, you can have a law and order platform and say that we we want law and order to be established in our communities. People want to be safe. But when law and order means that we're going to crack down on certain communities and it's that dog whistling that I brought up earlier. And then you start looking at things such as mandatory minimums and the broken criminal justice system, knowing full well that, okay, if you want people to be off of welfare and you want people to be empowered, you can't put criminal justice policies into place that are going to break up communities and keep them disenfranchised. You can't say that you want you know, voter validation, which I believe in. I want to make sure that the person that comes to the polls is authorized to vote. I give you that. That's not the same as voter um, suppression where you're taking people going to the polls and saying, well, if you don't have these three pieces of ID, you have school ID, that's not good enough. If you have a gun license, that's good enough. Well, if it's a state university, 
that has your name, address, phone number, age, and social security number. Why is that not good enough? Or like what happened in North Carolina where I lived for 10 years and my wife and I were uh, our alumni of Davidson College. You know, why? W- if you already have early voting, why would you cut back the hours? We should be encouraging more Americans to vote, not discouraging it. You know, there needs to be a consistency in conservatism. One of the things that I try to bring as a black Republican is a sense of, of the civil rights past moving forward with a new civil rights movement in the 21st century with the proper application of conservatism in it. And I think that there's a place for African Americans. I think there's a place for middle class Americans to resonate and gravitate towards that type of Republican message. The problem is, does it have retail value right now? Does it sell? Is it sexy? Is it inspiring? Yes. Can, can, if you really know this stuff, Mark, can people buy into it? Yes. I saw that in my races. People that never voted Republican in their lives, black folks, especially in Pittsburgh last year, never voted Republican in their lives with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket, gave me more votes than any Republican had gotten in that district in almost 25 years. But, but if you don't have critical mass that's buying into that, and it's a lot easier to sell the Trump brand of, and I put that in quotation marks, air quotes, the Trump brand of conservatism with people such as the, the congressional candidate out in Montana that, you know, the day before his special election slammed somebody, slammed the reporter. Slammed the Guardian reporter yeah. to the ground, right. If that's what you think the new conservative movement's supposed to be, what I will be doing will be the long game. But you can't. You can't make America what it should be for most people. And this is what I've, I've tried to bring in my journey. You can't make America what it should be for both people if you have one political party that is broken in a lot of ways. And right now the Republican Party, they're winning. But, I mean, winning doesn't mean that you're functional. It doesn't mean that you're liberating. It doesn't mean that you're empowering. It doesn't mean that you're focused on justice for all. And that's where we have to get back to as a party. And I'm trying to be a national leader in that movement. And when we return from this break, uh, we'll be continuing our conversation with Lenny McAllister, who joins us here live in Baltimore uh, for this conversation as he passes through. Lenny, good to have you here. Take a break. We'll be right back. Don't go away, folks. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner, of course, right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. For the last nine years, Lenny McAllister has been a commentator and guest on this program. Uh, He is uh, a young Republican, conservative thinker, African-American. All those things go together in his life. (laughs) Uh, He has come on in many uh, ways. He's run for Congress twice. Uh, and um, last time in his home of Pittsburgh, where he ran a vigorous campaign uh, to uh, not not a symbolic campaign, I'll say a vigorous campaign. Uh, he is now with the Commonwealth Foundation, where he's director of entrepreneur engagement. He's also about to become an adjunct professor of history at La Roche College in Pittsburgh and was named to the Route 100 as one of the most influential African-Americans under the age of 45. And it's really good to see, have you live in studio here. This, this is great. Been fun. So, I appreciate it so much. So um, let's kind of pick up. I mean, I think that, 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 that there's going back to this question of conservatism in America. You're clearly a, cons- political, a political conservative, yeah. right? Economic conservative, yeah, right. Um, 
and I often say to people that um, just because you're conservative doesn't mean you're racist, because a lot of people think every conservative is a racist, and I think that's not true. So I always often say that to be conservative is not to be racist, though most conservatives I've met are racist. <laughs> that's how I usually <laughs> describe it politically. So let's talk a bit about that. I mean, so your roots as a conservative thinker, and people often will say the, the black community is a conservative community. Well, that usually has to do with well, has more to do with religion and family and not necessarily politics because the majority of African-American political activists throughout the history of America have been on the, if you want right or left, have been more to the left pushing for a very different kind of America that's inclusive. Conservatives on the hand have been pushing for an America that remains really white and not very inclusive. But that's that's less of a political philosophy and more of a cultural and, and social philosophy. And that's where Republicans have failed the Republican Party brand. You know, a lot of those civil rights leaders had to push left out of necessity because if the laws did what the laws were supposed to do, from a conservative standpoint, people would have gotten capital punishment for lynching. People would have gotten... A, ver- a variety of different punishments, whether civic or criminal, for the activities that happened in America and were sanctioned for 100 years. You could not have Jim Crow laws under the 10th Amendment if the federal government was enforcing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment from a conservative constitutional perspective. So it is extremely understandable why many, many civil rights leaders from going all the way back to the 18th, 1800s, all the way to Reverend Jackson, who I worked with at Rainbow Push, Reverend Sharpton, who I've done work with previously on the radio, et cetera, during my time in Chicago, Ben Jealous, who was out of Baltimore, a good friend of mine. That who may be running for governor of Maryland. I, I heard before you did. Let's put it like that. Um, so with that said, I understand why, but... If all things were to eventually get to that level playing field, where would those individuals lie? They would want the government out of their way. They would want an opportunity to sustain their families. They would want an opportunity to be able to chase education and have that pursuit of happiness. The goal, to me, is a similar goal of a idealistic, and of course we're talking about human beings, so idealism and and reality are two different things. I get that. But I think the goal of where we all want to be looks more like what a conservative vision of America would be like. Now, the caveat is, to your point, because people have confounded social philosophy and cultural philosophy with political philosophy, that conservative ideal of America, generally speaking, looks like Midwest, white, suburban, 1950s, while black people are still sitting in the back of a bus in many parts of the United States. That's where you have to take the social and cultural aspect out of this and say, politics is supposed to be about people and citizens. And black folks are citizens of the United States, and therefore we must make sure that that equality is upheld by way of our national as well as our state and local laws. So back in 1960, when I was a young lad and I was a civil rights worker, um, and Richard Nixon was running against John Kennedy, who's about to celebrate his 100th 100th birthday of John F. Kennedy, right? uh, which is ancient history for your generation. <laughs> I was a history major, so I'm, 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 I'm uh, hanging with I, you. I am too. So, so, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I remember the election very well. And um, I was about a kid. I was 14, but I was a civil rights worker and already been arrested and stuff. And I, and I worked for Richard Nixon. Okay. And my father had this picture taken the night after the election. He, I was asleep in my bed and had this picture of Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge on the other side of my bed as a little boy and, and a picture of, um, of uh, the civil rights leaders on the other side of the bed. And so Pop took this picture of me laying exhausted after, the, after staying up all night to see who won the election yeah. and all the rest, right? And so and the reason I was for Richard Nixon back in 1960 was because the Dixiecrats had too much control of the Republican Party the arch-racist segregationist in this country, the most blatant. And so there was no way I could support what I thought was a pro-segregationist party back then. Those Dixiecrats are now your compatriots. Now you're talking about you, they, they were in the Democratic Party before. The, yeah, in the Democratic yeah. Party. That's why I could not support. Yeah. Um, those Dixiecrats, because of Richard Nixon and more, because of the civil rights movement and the revolutionary movements of the 60s, for, for lots of complex reasons, but a lot, most having to do with race in America, um, became Republicans. So those Dixiecrats are now Republicans. Particularly and they, in the South. And they control the South. Um, and also, I think, have affected, and one might say it in, in a pejorative sense, infected conservative politics throughout the United States of America, North, South, and West. So I'm saying that to ask questions. So those are your compatriots. Those are the people that you um, politically party, party with. From quote, a partisan uh, perspective. Right? So, I mean, th th that to me is, it could be a major contradiction. No? There are pro-life Democrats in the Democratic Party. Um, there are... Christian Democrats and Muslim Democrats, and they, they are going to have different views on American and on religion. Can they still exist underneath the tent of the Democratic Party based on other beliefs? They can and they do. I think that there are definitely beliefs that I share with some of those individuals in the Republican Party, but I also believe fervently, and I'm, <laughs> I've been betting my career on it, that I have been placed on the path and you got to understand, Mark, I didn't really get involved in politics into my 30s. So this is not something I, you know, you, I, I admire people that have known what they wanted to do their whole lives, and, and you have, and you have done it, and you've done it very successfully, and it's been, been great to be part of this ride. But for me, I got involved in this in my 30s, and I feel like I've been placed on this path later in life because I am supposed to be one of the individuals that bends this back. And... As you well know, there are two types of people in the world. There are people that run away from fires, and there are people that run into the house to put out the fire. Which is why I love fire, the fire, yeah, fire, exactly. fire men and women, because they're some of the bravest people on our planet. They absolutely are. <laughs> so anyway, go and ahead. Yeah, yeah. Politically, that's part of what I need to do. I, need, I, I have had opportunities that most people have not. I mean, as a Republican, as a black Republican, I was the only black Republican that worked at Rainbow Push. Now, you can imagine there were people in the Republican Party that absolutely positively said, see, I told you he's not Republican. I told you he's not conservative. How could he work on the south side of Chicago with Jesse Jackson? But yet, I had access to Jesse Jackson so that when we were putting together urban policy, I could say, look, Reverend, Illinois is going broke. You want to get all this money to help fix the south side. You're never going to get it because Illinois is going broke with its pension problems. How about we work on a public-private partnership using these revenue streams, et cetera, et cetera. Let's put something together that we can get some buy-in on both sides from. When one of my mentees was fired after his 
36-hour child, uh, child died in the ICU, and McDonald's fired him, and I subsequently lost my radio show in Chicago as a result of it, I was able to tie in Tea Party, Republicans, and others to come together and put policies and programs in place to help education for poor black kids on the south side of Chicago. And you can guarantee you that there have never been Tea Party people walking around the south side of Chicago on Cottage Grove trying to help people with education, but they were there. I have a very unique place in politics to be a bridge builder. And I can't leave if I know that I'm one of the few bridge builders that exist on a regular basis that does it comfortably. To come here and talk to you, and we disagree on a lot of things politically, but we love each other over the years and never met face-to-face, and then go to a Republican event, then go do Roland Martin show, then go do MSNBC, then go talk to hardcore Republicans or Tea Party Republicans, and then go talk to people from the Nation of Islam. We don't have enough people that do that effectively and comfortably and lovingly. And for whatever reason, God's blessed me with that ability, and I, I can't walk away from that obligation. That ability is important to have, and I, and I think that I understand what you're saying uh, completely. I mean, I, that when I started this radio program, one of the things I learned early on from a very unlikely source when I went to a, was brought to a Native American convention and, and people asked the question of uh, what is communication, and people had all these complex answers, you know, every Native American person in that video said one word, was listening. Because you can find the truth in every corner, a piece of the truth in mm-hmm. every corner, and I've always believed that. Having said that, to me there's a difference between being, even though I'm absolutely pro-choice, and have been since I was a kid, I was in the abortion underground with my mother in the 60s to provide safe abortions for women, um who couldn't access them because they were illegal. We worked with a gynecologist who had a clinic and a farm out in the country, and so I did that. So I'll always be pro-choice, and my last girlfriend in high school died from a bad abortion in the back alley from Howard University when she was a student at Howard. So I'm having said that to say so, but but I'm saying that to say that there are people who are, who are against choice who I can dialogue with about lots of things. And I don't. And I think the Democrats make a mistake when they kind of push people away, and they mm-hmm. need to kind of figure out how they can wrap themselves around it. To me, that's different than being. I said, "Don't pejorative." I say, "In bed with," because you're not in bed with. But to to, to to being in a political organization that is, f- f- I think, full of so many blatant, hardcore. Racists who are driven by their racism. But but here's the question, then. Mark. So, so how, how do I? How does that dynamic change if you don't have people that, for example, they don't want to pay? There's a, a segment of Republicans that don't want to pay for for people being on welfare. They they genuinely believe that people just want to be on welfare, just want to be lazy, just want to live off the government dole for the rest of their lives, and want that to be a lifestyle. There are people that believe that genuinely, right? And they're willing to make the cuts in order to just get them off welfare. And, and, and I don't really care what happens to them. It's their attitude. If you don't have somebody in the room, while the Republicans have majorities and the majority of general assemblies at the state level and have control of Congress and have a Republican president, if you don't have somebody that's able to sit down and articulate from a policy perspective why we can cut spending, but you must have certain other caveats in place, I'm at that table. 
I can make those arguments. I can tell you right now at the state level, I've been effective at that over the course of years, both in Illinois, I've done it in North Carolina, I'm, I'm already doing it in my, in my native state of Pennsylvania. If you're not at the table doing that, you're not at the table with criminal justice reform and showing, hey, you know what, you can care less if you lock away black folks, but you, I know you don't want to spend more money on prisons, so I'll take the social aspect out of it. I'll care about the social aspect. I'm going to tell you that you're going to save 20% if you don't end up throwing these kids in jail keeping them in jail for 10 years and knowing that you have to lock them right back up. Somebody has to make the argument in a way where they can make the compromise in their mind to move the ball forward. Because if you don't, you're just running away from the fire. And guess what? And Reverend Jackson used to say this a lot when I was at Rainbow Push. Everybody watches the house fire, and sometimes they don't pay attention to the fact that that's their next-door neighbor. Somebody has to go help put out the house fire so it doesn't burn down the whole block. So... Coming back to kind of the, the, some of the center points of the question here, so what is it about the conservative point of view, well, really economically more than politically, but both, that speaks to you? What, what, what is it about conservative politics and economics that speaks to Lenny McAllister as a, as a young, important black figure African-American figure in Pennsylvania and in the country. Smaller government, bigger people. I think genuinely, when done correctly, because you can have smaller government and crush the people, but done correctly, smaller government will empower people to have a bigger role in their communities and their lives. It, I think, from my perspective, will foster a greater sense of creativity from an economic standpoint from a community standpoint, so that people can be more empowered, more liberated, to take the reins of what they do and what they do best, form collaborations without a lot of policies or regulations being in the way to bring the best and brightest in their communities. Now, do I believe in 100% laissez-faire approaches to this stuff? No, because we understand that there's been inequalities over the years. We understand where we are economically. We know that strengthening communities still has a national sovereignty implication. We have to make sure that communities that have been got forgotten about for two, three, four generations have an opportunity to come back up. Because if they don't, we can't compete against the Chinese. We can't compete against the Indians. We will start falling behind when it comes to innovation and education in many realms, and thus economically and the like. So there needs to be a role for government. But if you hit the sweet spot of, a, of an appropriate amount of government – and the empowerment of people across the socioeconomic realm in, in America, I genuinely believe we can have the best and brightest coming from all corners of the country and allow us to be the nation that we should be. I mean, we, there was a time, as you well know, where people would come from ghettos and become doctors. We are, we are effective. Still happens, but not but enough. But no, not enough. No, because, we, because we've left behind. I, and that's my point. That is my point. But here's the thing. If you have conservative principles and you're driving just the bottom line and you're not driving the, the long-term goal of what conservatism is supposed to be in America, you are doing it wrong. And I would, I would submit to you that there are a significant portion within the conservative movement in office and as, quote-unquote, th- thought leaders that don't know how to apply conservatism to America. They know how to apply it to red America, and that's just not enough. So, <clears throat> last, whatever time we have left here, 10 minutes or so. Um, so, I, I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to square this in my head, what you're describing. 
We have this mythology in America that government's in the way of business, I think. Um, but when you look at the history of this country, there would have been no railroad. There would have been no growth in America if the government hadn't paid for the railroads and the track that allowed railroads and communities and businesses to grow and still to grow. Still didn't just grow by itself. There's been no business innovation in America that hasn't started with major government investment, investment, including what's propped up all around the Internet and in digital communication. But there's also been... It started with the federal government. That's where the money came from for all of these things that allowed everything else to blossom. And people for, think it's just this innovation. Smart people come up and they entrepreneurs create something. It's not that simple. There's a dynamic that happens. Well, and that's it, what conservatives don't get. Well, I, I would submit that there's a fair amount of conservatives that think that everything just comes from the individual and government should be the side, you know, fit all the government that you can fit into your bathtub. I'm not saying that. But I also am also saying that I encounter entrepreneurs all the time. I'm thinking of one in particular in Western Pennsylvania I met with about five weeks ago. They said, look, between the federal and the state regulations, it's hard for angel investors to come in here and basically just cut a check to five firms and say, here, go hire three people and come back to me in six months and report to me what's going on. Because the regulatory environment disincents them from being able to do that. Because either they're going to be double taxed or it's just illegal to cut that type of check. Whereas if you look at other areas in America, the money was able to, f to flow more freely as a result, allowing some of those innovations to be able to come about faster. And in a time where we didn't have global competition like we do now, where speed is even more important, you do need some of those regulations pulled back. Now, again, there's a difference between laissez-faire business and just carte blanche, do whatever you want, versus saying, okay, is the regulatory burden – inhibiting us where we are right now and what can we do to, to peel that back to an appropriate level where entrepreneurs and investors can do what they do best so that more people can get into the workforce and succeed in America. One of the problems for me with people who are against regulations, and I'm, I also think that the regulations are in the wrong place often in our country, um, and they do stymie people in small businesses having been, this is a small business, having been a small business person myself. I mean, mm -hmm. I, it stymies people. I've also been a union organizer, so I take it from the other side as well. Um, but the, the 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 difference is is that because of discrimination against women in the workplace, because of racism in our country, because of what we've done to our environment, you can't live without regulation. Well, again, not without regulation completely. No one's ever saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is still there is a sweet spot where we can find where you can roll back some regulations and still have protections. Again, if you enforce the Constitution and you enforce the common sense laws that are on the books, you're not going to give a woman 70% of a salary that a man's going to earn in the same job. You're not going to discriminate against an African-American. But that goes back to what I said before. There's an American dream, an American ideal, and then an American reality. We have not, from a constitutional and dare I say even a conservative constitutional perspective done what the law has asked us to do for generations upon generations in this country if we started doing that then the needs for regulations on top of each other the duplicity of regulations and then still the lack of enforcement fully of those regulations which only inhibits business but still doesn't get the result that we need because we still see the the racism and the sexism and others other aspects that hold back American business still in place. 
you have to get to that sweet spot, but you have to do it in a way, and, and conservatives, we don't do this well enough. You have to do it in a way where the vision includes all Americans. So let me conclude where we began. As we sit here in a conversation with Len McAllister, joining us live in the studio here at the Center for Emerging Media in Baltimore. Um, one of the things Trump has unleashed in this country are the hate groups and the racist and most xenophobic groups in the country. A young man was just stabbed to death at the University of Maryland, Richard Collins. I, I read third. about it. Um, and if, if, that had been, if that had been a Muslim killing a white guy, it would have been on the front pages across America. Uh, a white man stabbing to death a black man who's just standing on the bus stop doesn't get a headline anywhere. Having said that, that's what he's unleashed. So again, I'm just again a very to me fundamental and very kind of ethical question. Um, how do you remain inside of a party that has that kind of person at the head of it that unleashes these kind of forces on our country? I'm not this person. I know you're not. But here's the analogy. Yep. If you're Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you can make a million dollars dollars annually living in New York City or living in Paris writing books giving speeches you know enriching your family and have a nice long life living to your 80s or to your 90s why would you stay in Georgia if you're Malcolm X and you have an opportunity to go overseas avoid the nation of Islam give speeches around the world be a leader in in the in the Mideast and write books and enriching your family and live into your 80s or 90s, why would you stay in Harlem with all the death threats? I mean, we can go on and on. There are plenty of civil rights leaders that stayed in harm's way, and, and a lot of them didn't make it out of those situations. But they did it because they knew change was necessary. They, they felt God-led. They felt that they were willing to chase wisdom, justice, truth, and a higher sense of equality. And if you don't have Americans that are willing to do that where they are, as uncomfortable as it might be, how do you move us to a greater point of comfort, a greater point of peace, and a greater point of justice? Those men sacrificed their lives, and plenty of men and women over the course of American history from all different shades and backgrounds have done the same. Who am I to leave the Republican Party just because it's uncomfortable? And yeah, there are times I get bashed. I get bashed by Republicans a lot. I have probably lost upwards of a million dollars in salary because I have not taken you know, popular positions. I haven't called President Obama a Muslim that hates America. I haven't done this. I haven't done that, nor will I. Because my focus is 50 years from now, is America better because of what I've done and what I've tried to help bring about? Or are we just still doing this political, you know, two-step? You barely scratch the surface of things we could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's really been a pleasure to, to, to have you in our studios and, uh, and here at the Center for Emerging Media. Uh, and uh, as you passed through Baltimore, I'm glad you called and said you were here. Well, I, I had to set eyes on you, man. I, I've always enjoyed coming on. I had to give you a hug and say thank you for all the work that you've done. And um, I look forward to being a guest again soon. But it's, it's always good to be able to come in and do this face-to-face, eye-to-eye. This is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Lenny McAllister has run for Congress twice as a Republican. He is now Director of Entrepreneur Engagement uh, with the Commonwealth Foundation out of Pittsburgh, about to become an uh, adjunct professor of history at La Roche College in Pittsburgh, and was named one of the Route 100 as one of the most influential African Americans under 45 years old. Uh, and Lenny, uh, welcome to Baltimore, and great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless you all. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our assistant producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andre Melton. 
theme music is by Wall Matthews of Free Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talkatsteinershow.org. Podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. Listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. If you're a source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. We'll holler at each other next week.